0: Welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. With me today is someone who I have known and admired for a really long time, so I'm very excited that she's here. Um, Eva Moskowitz, which is a name I'm sure you're already familiar with, uh, the founder of Success Academy, runs it, 47 charter schools, what I would argue is one of the greatest achievements in recent New York City history. So Eva, thanks for joining us.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Bradley.
0: Yeah, so we're going to talk about a lot of things today. The, the thing that had kind of caught my attention when I emailed you, asking you to come on, was was a Harvard Business School study that kind of documented the success and the work that you've done. But I want to just take take go back a little bit to the beginning, so that the listeners get a sense of your background, because it's you've done a bunch of different interesting things, and kind of they, they don't even necessarily all. I, I I see how they all kind of fit together, but I'm not sure that it's totally obvious. So let's start from the very beginning. You grew up in, in New York, you went to Stuyvesant, right? Yep. And, you know, what was that like back then? Like, given that Stuyvesant now has this reputation of just being this sort of incredibly intense factory uh, that, you know, kids throughout Queens are desperately studying for five years to get into, was it the same back then? Um,
1: well, it was um, quite magical from a student body perspective. Uh, you know, my- best friends are still from there. My, I met my you know, husband, my uh, high school sweetheart, uh, whom I married. It was really um, kids from all over the city of pretty varied socioeconomics, um, and even the racial and ethnic makeup w- was far more diverse than it is today. Um, because the educators were still part of the you know, contracts, the UFT contract, teachers actually got there by seniority. That since has changed. Uh, I'm not sure how they got out of that one. But when I went there, you had French teachers who didn't know French and math teachers who didn't know math. And the year I applied to college, the college counselors went on strike and refused to write uh, letters of applic- you know uh letters of recommendation uh there were you know pretty severe budget cuts so it was um uh, it was a great experience from uh, a student perspective but it was subject to all of the sort of craziness of New York city politics and um, educational policies
0: so, so walk me through from from when you finished divis until you end up in the New York city council which to you know I think requires some explanation because it wasn't like you 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 were an academic. How did that all happen?
1: Well, um, I uh, went to Penn, uh, studied history. I felt after four years, you know, I didn't uh, quite have my fill. uh, And uh, I went on to get a PhD uh, at Johns Hopkins in American history. I published rather than perished but i was very um, concerned about the state of public education my husband at the time at, you know at that time uh, worked for charlie rangel in the congress and he said to me you know you should really run for office you don't need a degree you just need 50 plus 1 vote you know and i yep. said well i don't i don't know the political establishment. I I don't know how to raise money. How would I possibly do that? Uh, But then I decided that I was so passionate about public education and living in the greatest city uh, on earth, I thought New York, uh, a city that should have a first rate education system that really had a pretty poor quality education system. And so I ran in 1997 um, to, I ran against uh, a billionaire. His name was Andrew Aristoff. I lost. And then I ran in 1999 against billionaire number two and I won. um, And And did you also run against
0: Michael Cohen at one point?
1: I did. That was later. (laughs) That was later.
0: (laughs) Uh, Would you have ever thought back then? Oh, my goodness. No, never. Yeah. So so the my observation and watching you you on the councils, you just thought about it and handled it differently from pretty much the way that any other council member does. And I think on one hand you probably made everyone angry all of the time. But but you really kind of took the job not just seriously, but tried to use it proactively as an instrument to affect change. Um, One, what was it like doing it differently than everyone else? And two, did the speaker or anyone else tell you to kind of calm down and play by the rules?
1: Well, you are certainly right. My model for hearings, uh, not being from politics and not knowing that much about the city council, was uh, Watergate, the Watergate hearings, and the Iran-Contra hearings. And I know that may sound silly, but I prepared for those, uh, my hearings, as if it were... Hearings of those level of magnitude. And I think the administration and the speaker of the council was not sort of quite, uh, didn't quite have that in mind. I did try and be, you know, really, really fair. And my goal was to pull the curtain back for uh, parents and the public and the media so that they could, for themselves, answer the question of. Why were the schools not working from uh, an educational perspective, from a cost perspective, from a regulatory perspective? And I did take my responsibility very seriously to get to the bottom of the root causes of pretty significant uh, issues of um, schooling,
0: so this was probably the first time that, that the UFT realized they didn't like you. Um, what was <laughs> that initial interaction like? And was there ever a point where it got better or is it just, just been downhill from that first hearing till today?
1: Well, I think actually very initially they liked me because I held hearings on art education and I held the administration to a high standard. Uh, you know, I had... Uh, hearings on procurement and inefficient use of resources. Uh, It was really when I decided to have hearings on uh, the contracts, the labor contracts, the principal's union contract, the custodian's union contract, and the teacher's union contract, where they uh, sort of turned. Um, And I paid Randy Weingarten a a courtesy visit, so I let her know that i was having hearings and and why i was having hearings you know in my view those are public documents signed by elected officials the contents are paid for with public resources and as chairwoman of the education committee just like every other topic i had an obligation to pull the curtain back i think what the unions weren't expecting And uh, if you remember, Bradley, Brian McLaughlin was brought in by Randy to intimidate council members. It was quite uh, quite the dramatic uh, uh, few sessions. I think what they hadn't anticipated is I had studied the contract for about nine months and I knew the contract pretty backwards and forwards. And so it wasn't it wasn't meant to be ideological as much as to be Frankly, quite empirical on all the things that teachers were not allowed to do, or all the things that administrators couldn't do to run a great uh, school.
0: So, all right. So, so you, you kind of take this approach to education, where you're like, okay, I, I think that I can—I'm I'm putting words in your mouth—but see the school system in a way that other people don't seem to see it, and and, and perhaps move it in the right direction and then you decide to run for borough president what was that 2005 right yep. what what made you think that that was sort of the right next move
1: well uh, my husband said it he thought it was a bad idea and uh, you know he kept asking me what did the what does the borough president do and um, you know why why would you want to do that you know i had two motivations um, you know well first of all just any office i think you can you know make of it what you will. Um, But I also thought it was important, and this is going to sound naive in retrospect, to prove that you could take on the teachers union and still survive politically. Unfortunately, I was wrong about that, so it didn't end up proving um, that. Uh, I also had an interest, uh, perhaps longer term, of running for mayor, and so, um, you know, it was a good sort of training ground um, for that. I have to say, though, um, you know, I, I joke a little bit that I have um, Randy Weingarten of the Teachers Union and the New York Times to thank for the work that I do now, <laughs> because I uh, probably wouldn't have founded Success Academy if I had not lost that election.
0: Yeah, I was, I was thinking about it. So, so you lost to Scott Stringer. And, you know, and this is not meant to be critical of Scott, but he spends eight years as borough president, eight years of control. So 16 years waiting in the wings for his chance to be mayor comes in fifth. Right. So 16 years of sort of not that much, doing not that much and then losing anyway, compared to founding 47 schools. Like, thank God you lost. (laughs) Okay, so, So now we're at the founding. So. What made you decide to do this where you think you could do this? And, and what your philosophy has kind of been different than even than other charter schools. So what was it?
1: Well, um, first of all, I, I had three children uh, under the age of six myself when I founded uh, Success Academy. And I really wanted a school that, of course, had rigorous academics. But as a parent, I always knew that academics alone were not what was the most, the only important thing as a parent or a child. I wanted a school that also taught chess and art and dance and music and had sports and coding and debate. Um, I also wanted uh, a school that really propelled kids from a habits of mind perspective, um, whether it be intrinsic motivation or self-driven learning. I, I wanted an environment where um, kids were going to have the the sort of um, appropriate level of social and emotional development. Um, I didn't know that much, though, Bradley, about starting a school. And my first school, uh, Harlem One, uh, I wouldn't say was uh, great, out of the gate. And I really had to sort of, by trial and error, um, you know, make some uh, significant improvements. I mean, I did start with what seems like Victorian notions these days. You know, I, I really thought it was important that kids call teachers by their last name. I thought it was really important that kids learned to say please and thank you. Um, that there were no food fights in the, in the lunchroom, and that there was order and civility. Um, I also thought it was important to have uniforms um, and really not have kids focus on the latest sneakers, but, um, you know, have a sort of equalizing influence and also focus children on um, uh, becoming great readers and great mathematicians and great scientists. Uh, So science was something that was very important to me. We are still, to this day, one of the only schools in the nation that teach Uh, discovery-oriented science five days a week, starting in kindergarten. So our kindergartners do 135 experiments a year, and they study subjects that um, most publishers or educators, you know, don't think kids can learn. So they do physics in kindergarten. We have a unit on momentum. We do aerodynamics in first grade, Um, really trying to provide the kids with a rich intellectual culture that is a foundation. And when you do that, what happens when you get to high school is that you can have kids studying electrical and mechanical engineering, which are courses in our high school, and they can study anatomy and physiology in our pre-med program, in addition, of course, to AP physics, AP chemistry, et cetera.
0: Right. Yeah. The the word that I often think about in connection with success is a word that you use, which is rigor. Um, and, And in some ways, to me, it's having incredibly high standards and making sure that your students meet those standards as opposed to having low standards and then making excuses when they don't even meet that. Was the concept of rigor there from day one, or did it take a little while to evolve?
1: No, it was there from day one. I think I didn't know exactly what that would look like. And when I started, I didn't write my own curriculum. I You know, thought there are all these publishing companies, I'll buy it off the shelf. What I didn't understand is that they sell to districts, and even within the district, they're often trying to orient their content to, you know, the most struggling 10% of the student body. So it is, in fact, not very rigorous. So I actually had to write my own curriculum. Um, Now I share that um, for any district or principal around you know, the country who wants to, for free, uh, use our content. But I wasn't expecting that I was going to have to write uh, curriculum.
0: When did it become apparent that success was a success?
1: Well, uh, I guess there are different sort of stages of that. But, um, you know, when we first t- took the state exams, you know, one of my goals was not just to... Um, close the achievement gap, but to actually reverse it to ensure that poor black and brown kids could outperform kids in Jericho, Long Island, or Chappaqua, or Tribeca, or Upper East, or Bayside, what, whatever it may be. Um, and you know, we did that once, but it wasn't clear that we would be able to do that over and over and over again. Um, in 2018, uh, 19, which is the last date that the state tests were administered, you know, of the 25 highest-performing schools in New York State in mathematics, um, Success Academy is has 22 of those spots. So we we proved at scale that we could reverse the achievement gap. But then I was worried about, well, what about high school? Maybe you could do that. Three to eight, but when it came to high school, could you really um, compete nationally? Um, and, you know, we have proven um, that we can. If you look at the AP scores, and of course, at our high school, unlike many other high schools, uh, we have exams where 100% of the kids are required to take the exam, which is very different than taking your top 5%. And having them take the exam, but we have um, reversed the achievement gap there too. Or if you look at SATs, or you look at college admissions, by any external metric, um, we have fulfilled um, the 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 promise of reversing the achievement gap.
0: So. When I started working with you, like around 2010, when we did that campaign together, lift Mm -hmm. the charter cap, it was pretty clear at that point that that you were succeeding. Um, So here you are; you're taking kids who their equivalents seem to struggle in public schools all over the city and all over the state. You find a different way to do it that's exponentially better. What's the reaction from education policymakers at at DOE and at the at SED?
1: Look, I I was really fortunate to be doing this. When Mike Bloomberg was uh, mayor. And I I have to just say that if it were not for him, we would not be at 47 schools because we couldn't get the space. And as you know, uh, quite well, um, in order to get the space, uh, Mayor Bloomberg had to stand up to this intense opposition. Mayor Bloomberg and Joel Klein um, had to stand up to this just intense opposition. It's sort of crazy when you've gone to these hearings because nobody is saying, well, the school is, you know, academically a bad school or it's not well run or anything. And in fact, you have hundreds of parents, our parents coming out saying that they want to send their kids to this school. But it was very, um, the politics was so venomous and so personal, um, uh, meaning, you know, I was attacked for everything under the sun. And it took so much energy to, you know, block and tackle the media and to, um you know kind of calm legislators down and to have sort of the truth about success academy which is pretty motherhood and apple pie from an educational perspective um but it, those were those were difficult years um and frankly i didn't know if we were going to survive politically because the opposition was just so relentless and and the unions went after me and success um and other charters you know that were less um kind of out there and forceful they kind of left alone and so we kind of took all of the incoming fire and um it was a little bit challenging frankly i
0: i remember <laughs> um but but with that said you know you, you kind of managed to to persevere and part of it i think is that you never went off of offense. Like one of the things that I've always liked about working with you and admired is, you know, you never sort of take a, a quarter off. You never sort of take your foot off the gas. It's always offense, whether it's educating kids or changing uh, state policy or city policy or whatever it is. Um, is how do you, is that an exhausting way to live? Like I, it's obviously extremely <laughs> effective, but what's it like?
1: Uh, it's pretty exhausting and one can have sort of uh, internal dialogue about, you know, is it worth it? Um, will you succeed? Um, but I always have taken the view that, um, you know, it failing is failing for the kids. Like I'm going to be fine. The reason I have to fight is to make sure that the kids don't end up with the short end of the stick. Um, as for offense and defense, again, I, um, You know, I was never trained in uh, sort of uh, this kind of political strategy, but I just uh, sort of inherently think, well, why should I be on defense? Why shouldn't um, the opponents of ed reform be held accountable for, you know, the lack of truth and um, the sort of mystification of what is really going on here? Right. You have people proclaiming to be supportive of the underdog. Meanwhile, they're actually preventing um, far less empowered people from making basic parental choices that middle class and affluent parents make all the time.
0: Yeah. So now, you know, you guys fast forward to twenty twenty two. You kind of are the established success in the charter school world, and in a way that kind of makes you the establishment. So given that, how do you maintain a reformer mindset?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. I just think there are, you know, there are so many um, areas of public policy that need to be tackled for kids. Like, it's not like we've won for children and we're done, Um, You know, we just held our lottery and thousands of children are not getting a spot at success. So the question is, how do we support public policies that will create more great schools, whether they're charters or um, any other kind of school district or otherwise? You know, I start from the presumption of a really deep belief in parental choice, as one of the sort of North stars of good educational public policy. And I think we have just have so far to go, even though we've come really far, um, you know, reformers, as, as you know, Bradley, would fit into a, a small, you know, a telephone booth. <laughs> yeah. For, yeah. We didn't,
0: did, we didn't, we didn't need a lot of big rooms to host <laughs> all of this Yeah,
1: Exactly. And now, um, you know, uh, some are more, um Radical than than others, but uh, you know you've got um, you know just a very sizable charter sector nationally, and of course uh, in New York, we at Success Academy are educating currently one in sixty New York City children, and we think in the next five to seven years, you know, we'll grow by about thirty percent, and then we'll be educating one in thirty-two New York City children. Um, so progress is being made. I wish it was faster because, you know, as you know, as a parent, um, children can't wait. If When the kid's in kindergarten, they need a great school right then and there. They can't really wait a decade until we improve everything.
0: So, so you've had a, a lot of requests or pressure or whatever it is to expand nationally o- outside of New York City. What's been your thinking around that and why haven't you done it?
1: Well, um, I'm a New Yorker and I love this city and I love uh, the kids and families that are trying to make it work here. That is one reason. I think a second reason is, um, uh, you know, the opposition would like nothing more than for me to go elsewhere. Uh, And I think there are important policy battles here uh, that need to be um, thought. I think the third reason is just a little more pragmatic and practical. As you know, charters require a fairly significant knowledge and sort of um, political capital. If I went to another city, I would be starting at ground zero, I would have to learn the regulatory framework, I would have to learn all the political players, um, you know, over the last 20 years or so. Uh, I've sort of learned the, you know, some of the ins and outs of the political system here. Got
0: it. Um, so one of the policy issues that you're dealing with right now is the state cap on the number of charter schools. And there was an attempt to lift it in this year's budget, which got done a couple of days ago, didn't happen. Um, ha- what are the prospects for this sort of happening in the next year or so?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I don't, that's the $64,000 question. Um, so I don't really know the answer and don't want to pretend I know more than I do. As you know, Bradley, because you've been involved in in these issues, the cap has been lifted three times in the state of New York. Now, those conditions um, were, political conditions were perhaps better than the political conditions uh, today with a sort of leftward lurch of the state legislature making it um, more challenging. But I remain optimistic. I don't see how New York is going to get away with um, leaving families out in the cold. The demand for charters is at its greatest point ever. You've got uh, significant declines in enrollment um, in the district system. And so I think the pressure is going to mount. Um, and I think the legislature is going to look very, very bad if it, um, you know, refuses. I think it's one thing to refuse in one budget. Um, pre this budget, you had the pandemic and it was a little hard to, to think and talk about issues other than health. Um, but uh, I think... I think it's going to be hard to refuse. And, of course, um, we're going to try and make it hard um, and really put a spotlight on this issue and the human cost of um, failing to um, support the wishes of families. Yeah,
0: And, look, even if it doesn't get done this session, just based on where the politics are going, like two stats from today that, that struck me, Biden's approval rating is, you know, 42 percent. Inflation is 8.4 um, percent. You have to think that all going to even out to a certain extent uh, mm-hmm. a- after this November, which will mean, one, uh, more, more members who will support you. And two, as you know, politicians really react to the signals in either direction. So if they see the voters really rejecting a lot of this sort of far left agenda, um, they look for things to be able to do to prove that they're not of that. So that, that's my hope here. So let's say you had run for mayor um, and won, and I'm giving the magic wand here, the three things you would do in education.
1: Well, I think, um, you know, as you know, there are sort of um, structural uh, barriers to making schools great. You know, uh, if you don't deal with the labor contracts, it becomes... Very, very challenging. Um, But I think um, tenure, um, permanent job security, irrespective of performance, um, is not helpful to kids, to learning. I don't even think it's helpful to teachers. And so I think it would be really important to take that on. Now, that is a lightning rod issue. I get it. Um, but I think it is it is necessary. I don't see how you can hold kids to high acad- academic standards and give adults, both teachers and um, principals, lifetime job security, irrespective of performance. So that would be one issue. Yep. Uh, a second issue would be... Um, Love of reading. I think we are used to in thinking about schooling, thinking of everything as a public policy, that if we don't have a public policy for it, you know, we can't improve schools. And, you know, I believe with all my heart and soul that we can over index on schooling as schooling and under index on activities that are incredibly impactful. Uh, For learning. So at Success, we read in school a fair amount. We read outside of school. And I believe that the um, quality and volume of reading that kids do uh, is one of the most impactful um, activities. Um, The third thing that I'm very passionate about is uh, mathematics uh, and a conceptual form of mathematics. Uh, I think kids, uh, particularly poor kids have, um, math is like equity. It gives, uh, poor kids sort of equal access, but the mathematics we are teaching in New York city schools, but also nationally is, um, very unrigorous. And so I would do a major overhaul there so that the, you know, kids are learning, um, I think our kids are learning materials that are two and three years behind where they need to be. So we
0: luckily now have a pro-charter mayor in in Eric Adams. Do you feel like you'll be able to work with his city hall to actually push these ideas forward?
1: I do. I do. I think um, Eric is... uh you know has been supportive of charters and i think he wants he's sort of empirical he wants things that work he's uh pragmatic in in that regard you know it's a big system and it's easy to get distracted by all of the shiny public policies that seem uh to uh maybe make a difference and you know as your question to me suggests if you get maybe one to two things done in education in a four-year term, that is a victory. And so you've got to pick those issues really, really carefully and not spread your policy um, vision too broadly.
0: I want to close with not even a question, but as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, Harvard Business School just finished a case study about you and success. I just want to read to me what the key line one, which is with a student body comprised almost entirely of students from low socioeconomic households, success academy, charter schools. Has achieved extraordinary outcomes with superior test scores and college placement results. So, no, no question there, just congratulations. And on behalf of New York, thank you for, for doing all this.
1: Thank you, Bradley. Thanks for having me. This is great fun, and I appreciate it.
0: Sure.